Hey there, dear listener. I would just like to say thank you before we begin. My name is Blaine, and I am a biologist who specializes in herpetology. All the opinions and thoughts expressed here are my own and are not affiliated with any institution or organization with which I may have ties. This is just simply an outgrowth of my passion to share science and my excitement of things that I learn along the way. I may read sections of papers, but I will make it abundantly clear when I read directly from those papers and that the authors of those papers are not affiliated with me unless otherwise stated. Anything else is simply my thoughts or explanations of what I know. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of the Silly Salamander Scientist podcast. Today we're going to be talking about something that I found on TikTok, and I just thought it would be a little bit more fun to go ahead and start off talking about something that interested me enough to look it up outside of TikTok and just get after it. Today we're going to be talking about the unusual frogs of the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone. So some of these topics might get a little bit heavy if you're not into heavy things that might make you a little bit sad, then just go ahead and be aware of that. I'll try and give you a heads up. Uh, This first part is where it's going to be a lot of, so go ahead and, you know, be be forewarned on that. Chernobyl nuclear disaster was in April of 1986 when a group of nuclear scientists were performing a safety test on what is now the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in what is Ukraine. They were performing a safety test. And there was a lot of things that happened during that safety test. There were some safety things that were disregarded and they weren't really disregarded might not be the the proper word in this case. They might have been pushed on to do it and whatnot, given this time frame and what was going on in the the Soviet Union. But that's another story for a different time. Um, This was a an accident that had to do with xenon buildup in the cores. And there was an explosion that unfortunately killed uh, two people instantly, and then I believe there was up to about 50 people that were killed in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, firefighters and workers that were trying to clear things up and figure out what was going on. And in the end, it ended up killing about 830,000 people, depending on what estimates you're using and what websites you might look at. I don't know if the Russian government really recognizes how many were lost during this time or what their count is or whatnot or what their official stance is depending on um, what source you're looking at. But the aftermath is not the end, not by a long shot. The explosion sent radiation all across Europe. A little bit of it in faraway places was not as detrimental and it wasn't as impactful and it was well within non-dangerous limits. But there's a number of places that this radiation is just toxic and it is still there. In the immediate aftermath was the hardest consequences for the immediate surrounding area. The entire town of Pripyat, which I think was 60,000 people, was evacuated within, uh, I think, 36 hours, if I'm remembering correctly. But all of that immediate area, about the 30 square kilometers that were around the Chernobyl uh, power plant, are what is known as the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone. There is an area about 150,000 square kilometers around that that is that was is contaminated and it's still contaminated. You can still find, I think, pockets of radiation throughout it. And uh, Kyle Hill has a fantastic series learning about um, radiation and the dangers of radiation and things that can happen when nuclear power and nuclear energy is not 
harnessed correctly when it is used irresponsibly. Going forward, we have to be aware of those things as long as we're pushing towards more cleaner energies and we're pushing towards a more sustainable future overall. Now, nuclear is still one of the safest options that we have. It has one of the least amounts of death per unit energy that is created. If you look at the deaths from um, like the fossil fuel industry and whatnot, where you look at the long-term health effects, especially in cities with all the offputs of from cars and whatnot, and you know just direct deaths. If we want to look at that when it comes to oil out in you know on uh, on oil rigs and things like that, and then nu- not nuclear, um, and then solar has it has consequences. Every, everything has consequences, but it comes down to mitigating those consequences and what are we willing to sacrifice and what are we willing to, um, what are we not willing to give up, I suppose. There is a way forward. There are more sustainable ways forward and we need to be working on those. It won't be an overnight process, but we're, we're still going for it. But anyways, one of the things I did want to mention though, that when I was looking stuff up for this, um, it reminded me of a story that I was told and it was uh, the, the baby tooth survey back in, I want to say it was an ongoing survey in uh, of the late 50s or 60s and whatnot. Some people might not know that there were nuclear tests done on American soil from a span of 1951 to 1992. Almost a thousand nuclear tests were done on American soil. 828 were actually underground, but still, that is a lot of nuclear tests that were done. And this was, these, these were done, but we didn't really know all that well. I mean, we did know, but we didn't, I guess we just really didn't care. We didn't consider the effects um, detrimental because they, we figured all of the, the fallout and whatnot would land mostly in the desert. But there was a group of moms and doctors that were concerned about the health effects from these experiments because people did know that these experiments were going on in American soil. And they took, I believe, about 50,000... Side note, um, I didn't know, even even being a biologist, that baby teeth are called deciduous teeth. And that honestly just makes me really uncomfortable. I don't know why. Just the term deciduous teeth just... It just puts me on edge. But anyways... Um, uh, the, the, these groups, they collected all of these teeth and uh, they decided to look at all the chemical compositions that might be on them um, from like the, from the outside and whatnot. And they actually found significantly high levels of a number of different radioactive elements that shouldn't be there. And these were directly connected to the nuclear tests that were being conducted on American soil. And it might be one of the reasons that cancer rates started to spike around that time, but also, in fairness, hot dogs were introduced around that time as well. So, you know, nuclear radiation, nuclear fallout versus hot dogs. Yeah, who, who, who knows, honestly? But I'm kidding. Hot dogs probably don't cause cancer. I mean, everything causes cancer. Um, anyways. During or the aftermath, the immediate aftermath and of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, over 100 radioactive elements were released into the air, contaminating that entire 150,000 square kilometers. There was a number of things that they tried to do to mitigate the environmental consequences of what had happened, including uh, turning over the dirt, ripping down trees, 
killing larger animals like dogs and cats and you know wolves and things that would wander through but obviously you really can't kill everything that's going to be in there things are going to live but uh the long-term effects or i guess the the uh the medium-term effects were we, we we did see pretty early on that there was mutations that were happening within the life that was there so a lot of the trees were starting to mutate and the, the leaves were weird birds had nearly disappeared from the area and there were a number of consequence of environmental and ecological consequences for this that were seen in the years after especially after the end of the soviet union when a lot of um more access was granted around those areas and so this dear listeners is where we get to our first paper i accidentally read the wrong paper at first whenever i was preparing to do this um I wanted to read the uh, paper about frog colorations on within the uh, Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone. I actually ended up picking the wrong one, and I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know at first. And I read the whole thing. I was like, "Oh man, that was interesting." That had nothing to do with uh, frogs. But anyways, I ended up finding it. So the first paper we're going to look at is a paper by Clement Carr at all and this was published in 2021 it was received on april 2021 revised the 25th of june and then accepted the 29th of june and then it was published in a journal called evolutionary applications it is on wiley it is open access you can go and read this along if you would like to Uh, i will put the link down in the show notes for this but i'm going to go ahead and just read directly from the abstract just so you have a little bit of idea what is going on and i it quote Despite the ubiquity of pollutants in the environment, their long-term ecological consequences are not always clear and still poorly studied. This is the case concerning the radioactive contamination of the environment following the major nuclear accident at Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Notwithstanding the implications of evolutionary process on the population status, or yes, I'm sorry, population status, uh, few studies concern the evolution of organisms chronically exposed to ionizing radiation in the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone. And they examined 19 populations of the eastern tree frog, um, Hyla orientalis, sampled in the Chernobyl region about 30 years after nuclear plant uh, accident to investigate the microevolutionary processes ongoing in local populations. And so that was about half of the um, half of the abstract there. So getting into it, it is really interesting. And so one of the things that I really want to highlight in this study is uh, in one of these paragraphs here on the first page in the introduction, it says populations exposed to pollutants often experience genetic erosion. This was a direct quote. Two processes can be origin of the decreased diversity, a directional selective pressure, which can be driven by modification of the environment and or a demographic bottleneck involving the fixation of polymorphic alleles with neutral drift. So when it comes to understanding how certain aspects of the world, including pollution, war, any kind of event that might influence how ecological processes function, there's something you need to realize um, that there are going to be different types of pressures applied differently at the same time, or maybe not at all, depending on what species it is you're looking at. There are things that are going to apply broadly to all species, and those things are going to be quite evident, like the uh, the nuclear disaster or a nuclear strike like on Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. Those things are immediate, and they're going to affect all life forms the same. And then there are the long-term 
more chronic issues that might come about when something happens, like pollution. Some life forms might be a little bit more resistant to that certain type of pollution, while others may not. So there is a pressure applied equally to both forces, but it affects one differently than the other. And that is where we start to see differentiation. We start to see uh, population declines or rises depending on this pressure, which is why it is really hard to determine impacts of any given thing at one time without a long-term study, because you don't usually know how one thing is going to react to a very certain thing unless you've pulled that thing into a controlled environment and tested it and then also confirmed those same findings out in nature because things work differently from the nature to lab. It really shouldn't work that differently if you've designed your experiment properly, but things always happened. Nature is very unforgiving when it comes to um, how well it respects your experiments. So there are a couple different types of selective pressures that you should know about. So there is uh, directional selective where one is some pushing something to like a more extreme version or a more reserved uh, portion. And then there is stabilizing selection where forces are causing things to become more compact to where, um, sorry, everybody, my headphones just went off there and I had to, had to deal with that. Um, so you're talking about uh, stabilizing selection. So basically there is a, if you have a broad category of traits, then there might be a pressure applied that selects on the far edges of that, where say we have like a type of squirrel or something. Um, we have really short tails on one side and really long tails on another side. And there's some kind of force that says the really long tails and the really short tails those, those got to go. And so it directly stabilizes the population to having a more medium-sized tail. And so that is what we call a stabilizing selection. And then there is a disruptive selection, which kind of takes like the most medium traits. And then it just like says, we don't, we don't want any of the medium traits. And it just slices it right down the middle and pushes towards the extremes. And so we get really long tails and then we get really short tails. You know, maybe there is a, a, a shortage in acorns and the ones with really long tails can grip onto the branches and, you know, get ones lower in the tree. And then the ones with the short tails are good at flying or something like that. You know, obviously this is a ridiculous idea, but like there, there's some kind of adaptation to having one or the other in this type of selection. But you can really only know these kind of after the fact, but you can kind of see them in action in certain circumstances, um, not necessarily in the example that I gave, but you, know, you, you get the point. So going on, it says in that same paragraph, uh, there are two explanations for this observation that are not mutually exclusive. First, exposure to radioactive pollution can lead to increased mutation, which can partially offset the genetic diversity loss caused by population bottlenecks. So there's an interesting things when it comes to radiation. Radiation can damage DNA and cause different types of mutations to happen. Now, all of those mutations are not necessarily and likely not going to be good because it's just kind of caused by damage to the DNA and it's not going to replicate itself properly. I might not be able to heal damage. You might end up with cancers. You might end up with any kinds of tumors and things that are just generally not advantageous. But there are often times where some of the, the, the effects from the mutations that they get might be low enough and might offset a different kind of pressure that it becomes advantageous to have that mutation caused by 
that cancer or you're not that cancer, but that, uh, that, that mutation caused by the radioactivity that knocked off maybe a certain type of nucleotide and changed something. And now it, it, it has a chance to get different types of alleles and different types of genetics to where um, it is more advantageous to have that in a certain type of circumstance than not. And this is going to become really, really important in the next paper that we're going to read to understand that certain types of selecting pressures can can still apply but a different type or an unusual way of circumventing that pressure can lead to a lot more or a lot different ways of getting around that pressure hopefully that makes sense so kind of going on and getting into their um their, their conclusion statements on their introduction, and once you get to the end of the introduction, is typically where they're going to tell you what the experiment is about and, and what they're looking at. So, quote, we studied population genetics from 19 populations of H. orientalis, sampled about 30 years after the Chernobyl nuclear power plant accident at sites located across a wide range of radioactive contamination inside and outside the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone. Uh, they used a certain uh, cytochrome B coding gene as mitochondrial marker and 21 nuclear um, microsatellites as nuclear markers uh, to examine the difference in um, the, the the coding, basically. So they they took a whole bunch of different sites inside the outs- and outside the uh, high radioactive area, which is the nuclear exclusion zone, and they looked at the dosages, they took soil samples, they did these different kinds of things to examine how, in the immediate region where they they took uh, frog samples at, and they examined how that radiation might be affecting genes and whatnot. So when you read scientific papers, you can kind of read the abstract introduction, skip the materials and methods because those get really, really specific. And if you're not really looking to get into specific because they kind of get a little bit boring sometimes, you can skip the materials and methods unless you're looking for uh, a specific process, which most people might not really want to. And that is completely fine. The first thing that they looked at, and you can look at figure two if you want to look at this yourself, they looked at mitochondrial nucleotide diversity versus the frogs in the Chernobyl nuclear exclusion zone and other European populations. And this is figure, um, yeah, graph A on figure two. So you can look at this box plot that they have there and you can immediately see that there is a significant difference. The p-value is less than 0.001, which is magnificently significant between the frogs in the exclusion zone and all the other European populations. It is fantastic. And you can even see a difference in the, um, what does that say? Nuclear genetic diversity between the populations as well. And then the one in the middle gets a little bit, a little bit too confusing to explain in a podcast. So they did a whole bunch of statistics. I always love looking at the statistics of what they do. Typically they're going to do things like, uh, P-tests, they're going to compare those to Hardy-Weinberg equilibriums, which is a look into the uh, stability and flow of populations and how genetics come in and out and whatnot and to see if there is stability, basically. There are a lot of assumptions that go into it, but those assumptions are fine. You can you, you can work your way around them in, in a way. It, it's hard to explain. That'll be for a whole another episode, basically. So 
Starting with their uh, discussion, again, skipping a little bit over the materials and methods, several studies have shown that in the nuclear exclusion zone, and this is a quote, uh, where all human residents have been evacuated, large mammals in particular are um, reappearing, doubtless due to an increase in human disturbance wildlife. Other studies have shown decrease in abundance in some species in the CEZ, like birds and insects, which some of these things kind of make sense. Some species are a little bit more sensitive to these radiations than Others might be, and but there it's it's still not in, entirely known. And there's still a lot of study that need to be done, uh, but but yes. So as as we go in a little further, uh, in contrast, quote in contrast to the expected genetic erosion induced by wildlife exposure to a pollutant, our results did not show a genetic bottleneck of H. orientalis populations in the CEZ compared to other European populations studied in this other study that they mentioned. We found a higher mitochondrial genetic diversity for the populations in the CEZ, while similar nuclear genetic diversity was observed between CEZ populations and other European populations. CEZ is referring to Chernobyl exclusion zone. So they did not find a severe bottleneck in genetic diversity. And I guess I should probably uh, define genetic diversity and why it's important. So genetic diversity basically means that there is more genes out there to be able to adapt to certain situations. So if you only had uh, dominant genes for brown eyes, let's say, let's say brown eyes are really good at seeing in the dark. You know, if you only had, or I'm sorry, that brown eyes are really good for seeing in the daylight. If you only had eyes that were really good for seeing in the daylight, you couldn't see very well in the dark. But if you had a population with brown eyes and blue eyes, then those different populations would do better at certain things. The brown eyes would do better at seeing in the daylight, the blue eyes would see better at nighttime, and they would have their own respective roles, and, you know, eventually things would kind of break off and whatnot, possibly into their own different types of species, which is when you get speciation happening. But genetic diversity is really important because uh, it kind of mitigates and kind of pushes back against extinction probability. And frogs... And amphibians are not exactly thought to have very res resistant genetics to uh, extinction for a number of different factors. And I'll get into that a little bit more in the, in the next paper. But basically just know that higher genetic diversity is considered a, a good thing in ecology. And you really can't escape that all that much. There's really no um, way to get around having genetic diversity. But some species manage to do it okay. So just just know that typically more is better when it comes to genetic material. Um, yeah, so. Uh, and they have a, and this is section 4.2, and a quote, mitochondrial and nuclear markers differ also in their range and differentiation between populations, but not in their relative structures of these populations. So they differ in in the grand scheme of things, but not in the, uh, the, the, the immediate area almost. So you can, uh, you can see how that, that might be kind of helpful being, obviously it would make sense because if species aren't, um, diversifying well enough, not diversifying well enough, but they're not traveling very far between populations, you wouldn't really expect that much difference in genetics between close and far away. And so hopping down here to section 4.4, can ionizing radiation be at the origin 
of the increase in substitution rate in the exclusion zone. The mitochondrial evolutionary pattern of the CEZ populations, which seems to be a result of dynamic comparable to an accelerated evolution, is not observed outside of the exclusion zone. And that is really, really interesting. So there's a higher evolution rate due to the immediate effects from the radiation from the accident. So the individuals that had that survived in the immediate aftermath were able to pass on their genetics successfully and there were issues with the offspring. They weren't exact copies of their parents. Not that with sexual selection you are ever going to be an exact copy of your parents, but they were able to they were able to do do it faster, basically. They had they had a lot of different um, a, a different genetics that just so happened to be able to survive given the situation as you know higher uh, higher radiation levels and that and that is really cool and that's really all I'm going to say on um, this paper. It gets a little bit more more technical than I would really like to get into. So that was the first paper I just want to get into. I just want to give a little primer, mention a couple of things about radiation and about genetics and whatnot so we can have a little bit better of an understanding going into the next paper that we're going to talk about. All right, and so for the paper that we all came for, Ionizing Radiation and Melanism in Chernobyl Tree Frogs, this was published by, uh, hopefully I'm saying their names correctly, forgive me if I do not, uh, Baracco and... Orizola. And this was published in the journal Evolution Applications as well. It is free to access. It was accepted on the 21st of August 2022. Please go read it. It is a very good read. Hopefully, I think everyone should be able to understand it relatively easily. They do a fantastic job about communicating their results. And let's go ahead and read a little bit of the abstract so you can kind of get an idea what's going on here. Quote, human actions are altering ecosystems worldwide. Among human-related pop." Uh, oh, goodness, man, I am struggling today. Among human-released rel- pollution, ionizing radiation arises as a rare but potentially devastating threat to natural systems. The Chernobyl accident represents the largest release of radioactive material to the environment. Our aim was to examine how exposure to radiation from the Chernobyl accident... They spell Chernobyl, interestingly, in this. They spell it with O's instead of... Interesting. Anyways, sorry, I didn't mean to get caught off on that on that side tension. Um, accident influences on dorsal skin coloration of the eastern tree frog, which is the same frog that we were examining with the very high mutation rate as compared to the other frogs within the European Union. So they are looking at the melanin content in their skin, basically. And one of the starting sentences that they have here is strong selective factors can induce fast adaptive responses and signs of rapid adaptation to some pollutants that have been observed across many taxa. We just read that that is the case. It is a strong selecting factor inducing fast responses because it, it, the species either die, they adapt or die in this very specific circumstance. And it's been observed in a, a lot of taxa. This is not the first one. I didn't get to go read any of their references here before I made this, but it is, it is very true. But we saw from the last paper alone that these frogs were able to adapt and have much higher diversity of genetics than the other frogs across the European Union, which is really, really interesting because you would almost kind of imagine that it wouldn't. You would think that kind of one type of um, what one type of genes or genetics would be uh, far superior to be able to survive this 
gigantic, massive, awful event than others. But it's not really true. Our understanding of mass extinctions is, it's coming along. It's getting there. Think about like the, the KT extinction with dinosaurs, where, you know, a meteor would have hit the earth, you know, wiped out due to climate change and other extenuating factors. All of the, the dinosaurs and the marine reptiles, you can't have. Um, so whenever, just think about it this way, whenever someone suggests that there is a, an alternate response to what killed the dinosaurs, you also have to ask yourself, did it kill the marine reptiles too? Because those also went extinct during the same time. And so with the, the climate change is the, is the best explanation for kind of what happened after the asteroid hit in the um, uh, Chicksa Club impact, I think it's called. I think that's how you say that. Um, but anyways, so this massive pressure wiped out the dinosaurs, but allowed smaller or more you know, hairy individuals of the mammalian species to be able to help colonize the earth a lot faster than would have been able to otherwise. But there was a nice diversity of genetics that were already there to be able to spread out. Apparently, these frogs have done it quite quickly, which is really, really cool. Moving on. They say, however, recent studies have reported the presence of large and diverse animal communities, a lack of negative effects of current levels of radiation in many taxa, and even of signs of adaptation to radiation, which is, again, that is that is what we saw in earlier papers, which is incredible. It's really cool. Good for these animals. Glad they're moving back in. So there's there's animals coming back into the um, exclusion zone that were that were gone, that had either died off or um, had had left the area entirely. And continuing on, they say ionizing radiation is harmful because it can damage DNA and other biomolecules, causing cell malfunctions and increasing mortality risk, which is true. Generally, if you get an overdose of radiation, you end up getting radiation sickness, which is just an awful way that one of the most awful ways that I could imagine. Um, I, one of the one of the ways I could awful ways I could imagine going. Anyways, um, they are now going to get into a little bit more of uh, their, the core, the crux of their paper when it comes to why those things are important. And so skipping down a little bit here, it says in animals, coloration plays a key role in several ecological functions, such as sexual selection, defense from predators, and health maintenance. In amphibians and reptiles, the skin is really, really important. It is some of the most important features that the, these classes have because they're, they're unique against mammals, um, where, which we're more familiar with mammals because reptiles and amphibians are ectothermic. They are, their temperature is kind of determined by their, their environment in a way. And that doesn't mean they're cold-blooded. No animal's cold-blooded. But these, they are, they, some, some of the, you might be familiar with basking where turtles or frogs or snakes or something go onto like a hot road or a hot log in the early parts of the day and get a little bit of sunlight and warm up, much like we do whenever it's kind of nice outside. We'll go outside and just sit in the sun for a little bit. These animals kind of do the same thing. It just helps them function better. There is a nice area called the performance or preferred optimal temperature zone where these animals are going to be pushing the limit of how hot they can be and how cold they can be and run efficiently and be able to strike and hunt and move or evade capture really quickly. And so the, the skin is really important for that because um, when you think of amphibians, they don't really have the same kind of skin that we do 
they their skin is really permeable and so it can exchange gases it can exchange liquids it can help them with um a balance of minerals and things like that in them and snakes and lizards there they some of them can change the colors on their skin and, and so frogs but they can change the uh the coloration on their skin through like chromatophores and whatnot to darken their skin to be able to get more sunlight or lighten it to get less sunlight and change how much um, heat they might be taking in given a certain time frame. And uh, one of the interesting things that amphibians and reptiles will do is they'll orient themselves to the sunlight depending on how much sunlight they want to get. Because if they're like facing the sunlight, you know, if they're kind of looking at it, they're going to be getting less sunlight because they're going to be shading most of their body. But if they want more sunlight, they'll turn away from it to where most more of their body is getting uh, this type of sunlight. Going on here, uh, they say amphibians occupy both terrestrial and aquatic environments during their life cycle and thus exposed to a full range of radiation sources in contaminated environments. Furthermore, they often show low vigility and high phylopatric to their natal ponds. And yes, this is true, and this is very important. These are certain life features that are um, pretty unique to amphibians, and uh, amphibians and reptiles in a way, but amphibians specifically here, and that's what I'll uh, refer to from here on out, is that the uh, amphibians' dual-phasic lifestyle, and, and dual-phasing means two phases, which I'm sure you can understand, um, where they'll start their life in the water and come out, or some might just stay in the water, some might... Um, you know, stay in the water and then go out and then come back into the water. And there are things that uh, certain things can change between species and, and genera and things like that. But being dual phasic, they're kind of exposed twice. And that's kind of what they get at here in this paper is that if you're in the water, you're getting the exposure from the water. And if you're on land and in the turn and whatnot, you're getting exposed from those from that area as well. So there's kind of a, a dual exposure in a way throughout their entire life because amphibians are kind of dictated by water um, for for frogs. Toads, not as much. In lizards, this takes obviously not as much because they're more um, self-contained almost. But frogs, they're pretty bound by moisture, which is why they're not really that good at spreading out. It's why they're not very good at colonizing new environments because they, they can't. They're dictated by how moist their skin is because how moist their skin is um, is critical to a lot of functions that they have, and we can get into those functions more later um, in a different in different episode here. But how amphibians live is important for a lot of different reasons. One of the ones that is really personal to me, because it's how I it was what I work with, I work with um, microbiomes and chytrid fungus, and those two things are critical on amphibian skins because uh, chytridiomycosis is a, a fungal disease that is brought over by humans and has decimated amphibian populations by causing basically it it it, it doesn't allow amphibians to uh, regulate the amount of keratin it causes hyperkeratosis and they can't balance their electrolytes properly and there's obvious there's a whole bunch of different reasons but I wanted to mention those um, and so. The skin is really, really important to amphibians, and their life exposes them to a number of, of different contaminants, both natural and chemical and non-natural. And so amphibians are really good at being bioindicators because they're relatively short-lived, but they're really good at telling you when something is wrong. They're canary in the coal mine. They're a, a frog in the water. If something is wrong in your water, your frogs are going to show it just like your fish are going to show it. If there's some kind of chemical leak, your fish will die, your amphibians will die. And those how you how you really, really know that something is wrong because those things are very sensitive to environmental contaminants. And it's not 
because they're weak. It's not because, um, you know, anything that might be wrong. It's just that the things that might be in the environment are just so toxic. Think about um, the... Uh, oh goodness, the 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 uh, the poison, the, uh, the 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 tick the tick stuff that you put on your dog. That is so potent that if you let your dog go into the water without it being completely dry, like on their neck, it can decimate systems of macroinvertebrates. I'm not entirely sure about amphibians, but the 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 poison that is so toxic that we put on our dogs it can wipe out entire ecosystems in those ponds the little micro ecosystems not like entire ecosystems but it's really really toxic so the things we put in our water does have profound effects on on life as we know it we we don't get to get away from that so moving on it says recent studies have reported for example that radiation exposure was linked to an increase in mutation rates and mitochondrial DNA damage in frogs and radiocontaminated areas, which is what we just read. They referenced it. It is true. Yes. Just wanted to mention that. Thought you guys would appreciate it. Um, they predict that frogs living in or near areas with high radiation levels would present darker skin coloration, which may suggest that radiation acted as a selective pressure on that trait. Let's go ahead and move on. And they do sampling just... It's good sampling. I went ahead and read through it. I did read through this one a little bit more than I did the last one, but they their their sampling is good. It is um, it is it is a really solid study, and I recommend going to read it, especially if you want to do any kind of uh, sampling like that. So basically, they quantified how or qualified they qualified how dark something is by the luminance. So they have a 5, 20, 30, 40, 60 scale on how. Um, how much how much luminosity is there basically and figure two is where things get really really interesting they show you the uh, luminance in a picture of frogs they give you actual examples and then they have box plots with a scatter plot on it for the actual luminance within and outside of the exclusion zone and you can see right off the bat that there is a massive difference the significant difference, I guess I shouldn't say massive, I should be careful with my words. Um, there's a significant difference in the luminance inside and outside of the exclusion zone. And it is so clear when you look at this graph and when you look at their data, it is incredible. And they did a fantastic job. And so they did a looking at the statistics. I love statistics. I have a degree in mathematics as well. Uh, they used R, which if you want to get into science, you're going to have to learn how to use R at least a little bit. Uh, they do a R squared, which is a test kind of like how well um, your your data kind of fits the prediction in a way. And they have a, a pretty good one. Uh, there's not necessarily much of a, a, a bad R squared in a way. Uh, it's just a, a prediction, basically. But getting right into the discussion here. It says, we detected a significant association between dark coloration and proximity to highly contaminated areas in May 1986. Uh, however, we did not detect significant correlation between individual absorbed dose rates and pigmentation, suggesting that darker coloration is not induced by the current exposure to radiation, meaning... And backing up a little bit back into their methods, they took um, dosage levels. They, they took... Um, muscle samples they they euthanized the frogs humanely and then they took samples from the muscles to see how much radiation they had for on all the ones that they had sampled and they found that 
the dark coloration was not induced by the current exposure to radiation, which means what happened was in the past. Those things that happened and caused those mutations happened before this study took place because it's not about the living animals. It's not about those living animals uh, adapting to their environment within this generation. And by that, I mean they didn't get mutated and then show those mutations within this this very first generation that they are. So, you know, uh, uh, Gen Z did not get irradiated and and change it this happened to you know boomers or whatnot or long time ago and then they adaptations carried on which is which makes sense because these this these evolutionary pressures do not act on one generation they act over a number of different generations so the the current exposure to radiation is not what is causing the changes in colors which hopefully that's really cool to you guys because that's really really cool to me and says so kind of concluding up and wrapping things up it says our study designed our study design aimed to minimize the effects of other factors potentially affecting coloration such as environmental characteristics habitat type soil water water ph uh, capture time, field laboratory temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And at the species individual level, melanin-based coloration can have pleiotropic effects, meaning that one gene um, can affect multiple different things. However, in this study, the dorsal coloration did not correlate with the body condition. They say that for themselves um, here in the discussion. Basically, what's going on is past exposure to this radiation affected these populations to where even the later generations are still experiencing those things, which makes sense because the effects of radiation are, are just simply not going to be limited to one generation should that generation have kids. And we've even honestly seen that in uh, survivors from the atomic blast in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is, yes, so uh, definitely heartbreaking there. But Moving back into into frogs, one of the interesting things that I would love to see come from these types of studies is look at behavioral adaptations as well, because having just a physiological or a morphological change based on some outside pressure, um, it has it. I I would be I would be remiss if there was not behavioral adaptation that changed in conjunction with these different types of mutations because you know think about it think about it this way amphibians and reptiles rely somewhat heavily on coloration and and movement to be able to select mates for sexual selection and having those things change so so abruptly a long time ago is an interesting interesting thought experiment to whether or not these populations are splitting off in a way and how fast they're splitting off into kind of two separate types of species because, um, and, and there's a lot that goes into determining what is and is not a new um, a new species, and I can get into that later. Having sexual selection come into play here, some ladies might not, you know, they, they might not appreciate the the irradiated type of skin. They might like the the really, really light-skinned green boys instead of the dark, the dark boys, and some might really love the dark boys and not the light boys. And, you know, these things are are very complex and they take a lot of time to understand. I mean, you know, think about it this way. There, there's really no evolutionary adap- advantage. There's no evolutionary advantage for like a peacock's feathers to be as intricate as they are. At least that's one type of the argument um, 
the if you want to read more about this, you can read um, Evolution of Beauty by I think it's Ackerman, Sarah Ackerman. Um, or maybe that's the Berkeley. I, I can't remember. But these evolutionary adaptations that are happening at this very moment, the pressures that are being applied, I would love to see studies into the behavioral modifications and behavioral changes between the two species. And I don't, and obviously this stuff is very, very new. And so you really can't, uh, you can't just be mad at them for not doing that because there's a lot of money and, and time and effort that goes in, involved into um, field studies. So these authors did a fantastic job. Their studies are fantastic. Their results are really interesting. And I would love to see more come of it, especially on the um, Evo Devo um, evolutionary and, and development and the behavioral side of what came after. So I think that is where I'm going to go ahead and end this episode of the Silly Salamander Scientist podcast. Thank you for joining me throughout this journey. I loved getting to talk about this. I love getting to share science with you. If you have a topic that you would want me to cover, you want me to explain, uh, I know I was a little bit of a jumbled mess today, but hopefully I gave you something interesting to think about and you enjoyed listening. So until next time, good night or good day, depending on what what time of day you're listening to this, I guess. Uh, have, a, have a good drive to work. Have a good drive home from work. Have a good night. Have a good day wherever you are. Stay curious. Stay hungry for knowledge. Life is about learning. Life is about growing and having fun. Until next time. Thank you for sticking around all the way to the end of the podcast. Make sure to follow me on YouTube at Uneven Cuttlefish. Follow me on TikTok at Ellie Cuttlefish for my shorter version content and on YouTube for my video content and more higher end productions. Thank you and good night.